when I was in middle school, we took a field trip to one of these places that recreates colonial America. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these places where there's a working farm and everybody's dressed up like the 1800s or the 1700s. There's a blacksmith. Uh, there's a loom where they, you know, make quilts or whatever they use looms for. You know, there's the coolest thing I remember being like 12 years old. The coolest thing to me, though, was the potter's wheel where there was this lady. She took this totally formless lump of gray clay and she spun that thing with her hands and made this beautiful vase. It was, it was like a magic trick to me. I couldn't get over it. It was so neat. And then they told us, everybody here is going to get some clay, and you're going to get to make your own item. And I was thrilled. And I thought, okay, I'll just take the clay, and I'll do the same thing she did. Well, about an hour later, I got back on the school bus with the most deformed-looking ashtray the world has ever seen. Uh, turns out it was a lot harder than she made it look, uh, and I, I really wish, I started looking through my closet for that ashtray, but it's, it's, been, it's long gone. It's at the bottom of a landfill where it belongs, um, and has been for a while. But you know, I, I was thinking about this. I'm kind of like that poor ashtray, and I bet you are too. Here's how. We all have shaping influences in our lives, probably more than we even realize, things that shape us, that influence us, things like culture and family, uh, religion, advertisements and entertainment, peer pressure, our experiences, our education, really the list goes on, it can go on forever, and the truth is we all end up a little misshapen as a result of our influences. None of those influences are totally pure or even necessarily good for us, and I can prove it to you. If, if we're willing to acknowledge that our family, every family, has dysfunction, you carry that dysfunction with you. There's no way around that. Every culture, even if we're very proud to be Americans, every culture carries with it serious flaws that because we were raised up in that culture, we've adopted as our own way of thinking, even if they're not right or even if they're strange to other cultures. Uh, entertainment, advertisements, my goodness, those, those things create a false view of reality for us that we tend to buy into, even if just subconsciously, I watch, I look at advertisements and I feel like I need something that I don't really need. It shapes me, it shapes you. Um, And so it's impossible to get away from those things. And the truth is, if we're honest, we're all a little bit malformed as a result. None of us is as we should be or as we ought to be because we've been shaped, some good and some bad. Now, we all realize that some of these influences are negative and we do our best to try to rise above them, right? I bet you at some point you've looked at your own parents and you thought, I'm not going to be like them. I'm not going to do to my kids what, what they did to me. Right? All of us have done that. And so what we're doing here, we're, we're seeing a better way. We're rising above that influence, okay? We're getting away from their shaping influence. But see, even then, we're not really. Because all we're doing is choosing the opposite of what we were given, what we were shown, what we were introduced to. And so we're still being shaped by our parents. We're just going the opposite direction. It's a negative influence rather than a positive one. But what I'm trying to show you is we can't get away. I can't, I can't stand up here with any credibility and say, I'm my own person. I don't care what anybody else thinks. Nobody else has a say in my life. That's simply not true. We've all been shaped, for better or worse. Right? But right here today, I want us to see one of the really unique things about the Christian faith. 
Uh, I mentioned a minute ago that religion is, for, for most people in the world, religion is a shaping influence. It makes a huge difference in how people think and how they live. But faith in Jesus does not function in the same way as a typical religious influence. Faith in Jesus actually is not something that we can add into our lives as one of many other influences, that we just add it to the pot along with culture and family and entertainment. What the Bible says about Christ and about faith in Jesus is that it actually is the thing that cuts through, that pierces through all of our other influences. Everything else that shapes us forms us as we go along life, but what the Christian message says is that we don't have a better life, an improved life because of Jesus, we actually have a new life. And therefore, he's not one of many voices in our lives, he becomes the primary voice, the true shaping influence. And, and the Apostle Peter is going to give us some insight into that today in 1 Peter chapter 2. What I had Lisa read for us, just we're going to look at primarily three verses today, not much. But for context sake, if you've got a Bible or the Bible on your phone, I'd love for you to look back at the end of chapter 1 for context here. 1 Peter chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1, I think three weeks ago we studied this. But uh, what we're going to read in chapter 2 actually corresponds here. So I'm going to start in chapter 1, verse 22, and, uh, and read two verses from the end of chapter 1, and then we'll look at our primary text here. In verse 22, Peter looks at us, at the church. He says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, in light of that truth, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted of the kindness of the Lord. So Peter tells us, we saw this at the end of chapter 1, he says you are to love each other. He's talking specifically to the church. We are to love each other. Why? Because we have been born again. That's the root cause and source of our new love. You've been born again by the living word of God. Love one another because you've been given new life, and that new life is a life of love. And then in chapter 2, he continues that idea by giving us a list of things that poison that kind of love. You notice that in chapter 2, verse 1? He doesn't give us a complete list, but he gives us five attitudes of the heart that prevent, that corrupt the new kind of fervent love he's talking about. And he gives us this list. He says, uh, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, evil, and uh, envy, and slander. <clears throat> Uh, why does Peter point those things out? He says those things, all of those sins, come from a desire not to love people but to use people, to elevate myself above people, and therefore I demean them rather than edifying them. Uh, they come from a sinful desire to harm people, to get revenge on people, to pay people back for the perceived wrong that they've done to me. Okay, Those attitudes come from what the Bible calls the flesh, the old self, this is who I was before I became a Christian. Peter says, rid yourselves of these things because you've been born again and you are called now to love. Okay, simple enough. Then Peter gives us verse 2. 
which is really the principal verse we're looking at today, he tells us what to do instead. Instead of evil uh, and intentions, malice, hypocrisy, envy, slander, he says, verse 2, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, that's a great verse, but I've always wondered, what does verse 2 have to do with verse 1? They don't necessarily seem to connect or to correlate here. On one hand, we're being told to stop sinning, specific sins, but then instead he says, be like a newborn baby and, and crave the pure milk of God's word. <clears throat> um, well, here's the connection, and this is part of the genius of Christianity. This is how, I, if, you're, if, you are, if you live as a Christian for 80 years, you'll never touch the bottom of the ocean of God's wisdom. Look at how these things connect here. Think about this. We preach every week, every week, that to have faith in Jesus is not a matter of self-improvement. And I hope we're so very clear on that. God's goal for us is not to dust us off, clean us up, and send us out better people than we were when we came in. That is not the primary objective here. Peter has told us that it's a new life entirely, not an improved version of yourself, but a new self. And Peter says that we are born again by the living word of God. That's the new self. That's the new life. Your old sinful way has died. It's been, it's, it's no longer dominant. It's no longer the, the defining characteristic of who I am and who you are because you have been born again. Therefore, Peter says, like a newborn baby, desire and crave something new, something pure, not the old way of sin, but the new and pure way of God. And the way he says it is crave the pure milk of God's word. So he says, if you've been born again, you need to act like a newborn. And newborns, if, if, if we have parents or grandparents in this room, you can attest to this. Newborns are not terribly complicated, even though they are terribly difficult. Okay? They are pretty fairly single-minded individuals. Okay? There is no hypocrisy in a newborn baby. They don't have the capacity to deceive us yet. That day will come. But when they're little bitty in the crib, they, there's, there's not a whole lot they're capable of wanting. We don't always know what they want, but it's got to be one of about two or three things. And in particular, the thing they want most and need most is food. They need to be fed. They need to be nourished. That's why Peter says, like a newborn baby, have a single-minded craving, a single-minded desire for the one thing that you truly need above all else. That is the pure milk of God. So Peter is saying to us, listen, if you've been born again, then your new craving is the pure milk of God. No longer the spoiled milk of sin. No longer the spoiled uh, milk of uh, deceit or hypocrisy or envy or whatever issues of the heart continue to plague us. He says we crave something new, something pure, something that only God can give to us. Uh, the same word, the living word, that has brought us salvation, end of chapter 1. We've been born again by the living and enduring word of God. The same word that gives us new birth, Peter says, is the same word now that keeps us alive, that grows us in the new birth, that is our provision, that is our nourishment, okay? So you and I are shaped by a great many things. We have to acknowledge that. Family, culture, peer pressure, advertisement, the list goes on. But our primary shaping influence as Christians becomes something that is to us new. 
a new birth and for us a new heart and a new word. You may be growing up reading the Bible, but if you didn't have faith in Christ, then that Bible wasn't doing you, in a sense, any good until by faith in Christ you now see it with new eyes. We talked about that last week. And seeing it with new eyes, you crave it in a way that you didn't before. So to be a Christian is to crave what God gives us in his words um, because that's God's primary way of shaping our hearts. Okay, and that's a fairly simple message. Let's, let's start to apply it, okay? One of my favorite places in the Bible that, that runs parallel to, to what we're looking at today is, is the first psalm. You don't have to turn to the first psalm unless you're just really fast. If you took Bible drill as a kid, you can, you can go to first, the first psalm. But in Psalm 1, we're given a picture of a person, not just a command like we see in, in first, first Peter, but we're given an illustration. We're shown a kind of person that we are to aspire to be. And I love the, the picture of Psalm 1, one of my very favorite chapters in the Bible. It says, how blessed or how happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. This is a man who lives righteously. Or to put it in Peter's language, this is a man who has rid himself of all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. His life is marked by righteousness rather than sin. Now the question becomes, okay, how did he get that way? Why is he that way? And that's what the psalm tells us in verse 2. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in God's law, this man meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Three of the best, most significant verses in the whole Bible right there. But what we see in, in Psalm 1, we see a person who does not live in perpetual sin, and at the same time, he is a vibrant, uh, godly, joyful person. He's not the kind of person who just doesn't do bad things, but deep down he's miserable because he's missing out on all the fun. No, he lives a life of holiness, but that holiness is a fruit-bearing, joyful, wonderful life. It's, he, people want to be around this kind of person. He's a wonderful man. But everything hinges... On one word, I think, in that text, and that's the word delight. What is it that, that propels him to forsake sin and to live for God and to be a, a vibrant, godly man? It's where his delight is, and his delight is in the word of God, so much so that he meditates on it day and night. He never stops thinking about the word of God because his heart delights in it. Later on in Psalm 19, David wrote Psalm 19, and he says, God, your words are more desirable than much fine gold and sweeter than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. David says, God, your word is more valuable to me than all the riches of the world, and it's sweeter to me than anything that can please my senses. The sweetness of honey holds nothing to the sweetness of God's word. Now, Peter, what we've been looking at today, he says, crave that word like a newborn baby craves the pure milk that sustains it and keeps it alive. Is that how we approach our Bible? That we see it as a delight? That we think about God's Word all the time? That we desire it more than money or than anything that can please our senses? More than anything that can entertain us? And that we long for it? We can't spend a day apart from it. We'll, we'll shrivel up and die if we do. 
Um, I'll confess to you that I, I don't often look at my Bible that way, and I'm the pastor, okay? So this is not a, an accusation moment. This is confession. Chances are all of us in this room, if I asked for a show of hands, would say, I need to be more faithful and, and consistent and devoted to reading my Bible. I'm sure that's the case. And in times past, I would have stopped the sermon probably right here and said, okay, listen, we see what the Bible says about itself, that we're to crave it like, like pure milk, that we're to desire it more than any other thing, that we're to delight in it and meditate on it, and therefore we need to apply our hearts to God's word and get after it. Okay? And now that's all true. That's all true. But that can't be where we stop. That'd make for a short sermon. We'd all get to lunch early. We'd beat the Methodists to lunch, okay? But we're not going to today because things for me, and I, and I praise God for this, things have changed for me. It, it used to be for me simply a matter of discipline. If I'm not reading my Bible enough, I need to get after it and apply myself to it. There's truth in that. Discipline's significant. But that's not what Peter's aiming for today in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want to encourage us as we take a little bit closer look at what he's calling us to. Peter is not just commanding you to increase your Bible reading discipline. Look again at verse 2. Look at the attitude he's calling us into. Like newborn babies. Long for, crave the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What Peter is aiming for here is not mere discipline, Discipline's important. He's aiming, though, at the heart. He's aiming deeper. He's aiming more centrally into who we are. He's trying to get into my heart and into your heart. Peter is talking about craving God's word. Why? Because you've tasted his kindness. You see that? It's almost like an add-on there, verse 3. But it's so significant. If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, then this should be your heart's disposition. Um, Peter wants us to grow not just in better moral behavior because we try harder. He wants us to grow in respect to our salvation. Okay? Now, why is that so important? Jesus tells us why. In John chapter 5, Jesus had a very fascinating conversation with the religious leaders of his day. You know, in Jesus' ministry, the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests, they were constantly after Jesus, trying to trap him in his words, trying to find a way to ensnare him and get rid of him. That was their goal. And Jesus was always poking and prodding at the, the, the religious facade of these people because he was trying to help them see the, the, the point, the point that they were somehow missing in all of their religious devotion. And in John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to men who absolutely were committed to the Bible. I mean, these would have been guys who studied the Bible every day. They memorized the Bible. They're, and for them, that was the Old Testament in that day. And they were completely, absolutely committed to it. Diligent, devoted, yes. But Jesus looks at them and says, you've missed the point entirely. John five thirty nine. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You see what Jesus is saying to them? That the point, the focus of the Bible, in this case, the Old Testament, Jesus says the point and the focus of this book is me, is Christ. You're searching the Bible in hopes 
of discovering God's will so that you can do it, so that you can achieve it, and thereby you will earn the reward of eternal life. And Jesus says, I am eternal life. You're searching ultimately for me, but you're unwilling to come to me, and therefore you're still in your sins. This life, Jesus is trying to convince them, it doesn't come as a reward for your good behavior and your diligence. It comes as a gift, a gift of grace. And Jesus was trying to help them to see that they had missed it. These were men who were more than willing to study their Bibles. But they were in the end unwilling to come to the one to whom the Bible was pointing them. They didn't see him, and therefore they rejected him, and they didn't have life. Now, I want to bring that back around to us to say, it's possible that we can make the same mistake. And we, don't, we wouldn't even do it on purpose. It would not be for you or me a malicious thing. But we can do what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did. We can come to the Bible in a, in a very devoted way, but still miss the point. And I, for this, we're going to use a little test case here, okay? Using what Peter has been telling us, we're going to pick out one of these sins. You know, in verse 1, he gave us those five attitudes of the heart that poison, that corrupt love. He says uh, malice, hypocrisy, envy, slander, things like that. Let's pick out envy just for today, okay? Because my guess is that all of us know envy well. All of us struggle with envy. We're going to look at envy from the perspective of, I think, what Peter's trying to get us to see here as it pertains to how we treat the Word of God, okay? Uh, envy can take many forms. Very, very simply, we can just say that envy is a desire to have what someone else has, that's basically what envy is, okay? So if you ever catch yourself saying or even just thinking, I wish I had his income, or I wish I had her body, I wish I had their well-behaved children, wouldn't that be nice? I wish I had a house like that, I wish my grades were as good as hers. Um, envy also plays the must-be-nice game, I, just, I used that phrase a second ago. Must be nice, I, uh, I catch myself doing this, must be nice to be born into a rich family like that. Never have to lift a finger. Must be nice to never study and still somehow get A's on the test. Must be nice to go on vacations to the Caribbean every year while the best we can do is go to Natchez. You know, must be nice. Uh, must be nice to have that many followers on Instagram. You know, and, and we, we play these games. Okay, you're laughing because you know it's true. Here's the worst thing about envy is the fact that envy delights when other people fail. If I wish I was like him then it gives me some dark, strange sense of pleasure when he falls flat on his face, doesn't it? That's, that's envy, okay? And I use envy as our test case because I know it's in us. I know it is. Now, Peter says, rid yourself of all envy. But do you know how hard that is? I mean, we just talked about how deeply ingrained it is within our hearts. How do you just get rid of it? Let me tell you what the answer is not. The answer is not and cannot be, I need to open up my Bible and do a word search on envy. I need to find every place in the Bible where it talks about envy, every story that illustrates envy. I need to study them, and then I need to try really hard to stop. I just, the Bible says it's wrong, the Bible says it's a sin, so I just got to quit it. Okay? Maybe you have approached sin that way. And my guess is, unless you are just an outrageously righteous person, all by yourself, that approach has failed you. And in fact, it's probably resulted in more guilt, more condemnation, a crushing sense of failure, because just knowing it's wrong, even knowing that the Bible calls it wrong, is not by itself enough to change your sinful heart. 
It's not enough to, to change me. And so what we end up doing, potentially, is the exact same thing the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day were doing. We are coming to the Bible in hopes that the Bible is going to show us how to live, and I'm going to do what the Bible says, and I'm going to have life. And in the midst of that pursuit, we actually miss Christ, the person who gives life in the first place. And so when Peter says, like newborn babies long for, crave the pure milk of the word, he's saying more than just you need to read your Bible more. It's got to be more than that. He's saying, ultimately, we need to crave from God. That craving is a dependence. A newborn baby cannot feed itself. We need to crave from God what only God can provide for us, what something that only God can give us, and ultimately, that only God can do for us. Remember what Peter has told us already at the end of chapter 1, we revisited it a minute ago, that you have been born again by the living word of God. That means the, the, the gospel message of Jesus Christ has made you new. Not what you can do or ought to do, but what Jesus Christ has done for us. His, in his death and resurrection, you have been born again as a result. And now because there's a new birth, because you've been spiritually made alive, you're to live in complete dependence on your parent, on your father. You are only to desire what now gives you life and growth. Of all the shaping influences around us and in our lives, there's only one that is absolutely pure. And Peter says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, then now crave it all the more. Okay? So envy, right, is a perverse desire to have what other people have. I, I want... I deserve, I ought to have what so-and-so has. That's, that's envy, right? Um, and what we end up doing, we resent the person who has it. If somebody has more than what I have, I, I resent them. I, in a sense, I, I, in, envy is not admiration. Envy is a form of hatred. I don't want them to have it because I want it. And if I'm not careful, if Kyle's not careful, I end up resenting God. Because why don't I have what they have? Why wasn't I given what they were given. Why would God hold out on me like that? What did that guy do to deserve it that I haven't done, right? It's dangerous. But think about, again, what does the living word of God show us? Not just that envy's wrong. We know it's wrong. That doesn't stop us from doing it. What does the living word of God reveal to us? Here's what the gospel tells us in the face of my envious heart. The gospel says, Kyle, you've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 1. Some spiritual blessings, Paul says, every spiritual blessing in Christ. We've been forgiven of even our worst sins. On our very worst day, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and he made us children of God forever, something we cannot lose, that cannot be taken from us. God has set his seal upon us as our Father. You have unspeakable joy, 1 Peter 1 says, and an immeasurable inheritance in Christ, because Jesus has loved you to the full. There is nothing that you lack. There is no absence of God's abundance in your life, no matter what your bank account says, no matter what the appearance of other people's success looks like to you, you have the fullness of God's love given to you in Jesus Christ. See, envy is built on the lie that you really have nothing. Because you, because you don't have everything, that means you have nothing. And the gospel is built on the truth, the pure milk of God's word that says, in Christ you have everything. 
Everything. There is nothing God has held out on us. We have everything in Jesus. Only the pure milk of the gospel can cut through, can destroy the spoiled milk of envy. Knowing it's wrong won't change your heart. But seeing what Christ has done for us, just like the Jewish leaders that he compelled, you're looking in the wrong place for life. The Bible is is wonderful. It's God's word, but it's pointing to me. Only in me can you have life. And in Christ, we see the pure milk of his grace and of his word that cuts through the spoiled milk of sin. That applies to every sin. Try it. Not just envy. Anything in your life that you know is wrong, but you feel powerless to stop, the gospel is our antidote. The gospel is the pure milk that gives us life. See, if the, if the Bible is basically just a good religious book, if it's, a, it's a, if, it's, if it's a book full of moral stories and moral commands to help kind of shape our lives, it will shape your life. It can give you a great sense of God's character. It can give you a moral compass. The Bible tells us in no uncertain terms, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. Those are good things. But the Bible in that case can't actually give you the power to change. It can't change your heart. It's not meant to. Not because God somehow is deficient in the Bible that he's given to us. He never meant for it to bring transformation to our hearts simply as a moral book. And I'll tell you this, if you haven't found this to be true already, if we only treat the Bible as a moral book, it will actually crush us. It will crush you because nobody can live up to its standard. Nobody. But if we look at it the way that Peter calls us to see it, the way that Psalm 1 and Psalm 19 call us to see it. If we, if we understand that in the Bible we find life because in the Bible we engage with Jesus. He is the centerpiece of the whole book. He's the reason the book was written, to point to him in the Old Testament, to show us our need for him, to show us the fulfillment of his life and the fulfillment of God's perfect will through his death and resurrection, that we might receive him by grace, and having received him, now that we might abide in him and live for him. The Bible is all about him. When we see it that way, when we come to the word to have life in him, everything changes. Everything changes. It's no longer a book that crushes me because I'm incapable of obeying it. It's a book that elevates me now. As a child of God, I can honor him and live for him because I found life in Christ. Listen, listen, we're going to close here. I want, I want to show you how the Apostle Paul viewed it. This is from Romans 7. I'm going to read this slowly because it's very rich. In Romans 7, Paul helps us to understand our relationship to the, the law, the Old Testament law, okay? And it's so helpful to me. I hope it's helpful to you. Romans 7, 4. Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to Jesus, who has raised him from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Paul says right there, if you want to bear fruit for God, if you want to live a life that honors God... You have to die to the law, meaning you have to die to any thought that you, by your own efforts, can be righteous. The law cannot produce that in your heart. You have to be joined to another, like a marriage, Paul says. You are joined to Christ, who has been raised from the dead. He is not dead, he is living. And therefore, you can bear fruit for God because you are united with Christ You are not simply a Bible-obeying person. That's not enough. 
Then Paul says, verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. Paul is, is, is showing us in Romans 7 that the moral commands of the Bible are good. They're true. They're right. God gave them to us. There's nothing wrong with them. But they have no power to change your sinful desires. They're not meant to. That wasn't their purpose to begin with. Knowing that a sin is wrong might make you feel guilty and therefore make you try harder to defeat it. But it can't do anything to change you. Knowing it's wrong is only half the battle. Paul says knowing it's wrong is what ultimately will point us to Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we've died to the law and we've been joined to him. New birth, new life. Just as Jesus said, we come to him to receive life. And now because your life depends on Jesus's grace, not your own moral goodness, you serve God, Paul says, in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the law. You don't come to your Bible anymore saying, God, show me what to do so that by my strength, I can do it. I know I'm wrong. I know I'm not living up to the standard, so I'm going to get after it. That, that is how we miss Jesus, and the Bible will crush us under its weight. But if we come to it saying, in Christ I have life, this whole book shines a light, a bright light on him, what he's done for me, and now what he does in me and through me, then we have life. Because we come in a, in, a, in a state of dependence, like a newborn baby. Not a state of get after it more and do better, but a state of God, only you can produce this in me. And so I'm going to soak up your word that I might bear fruit for you. Christ can do that. Whereas the old law is dead to us. So the uniqueness of the Bible, listen, the Christian life, it's not just, the book is not just here to tell us what to think and what to do. In that case, it, it would be a shaping influence in your life, and a good one. If everybody tried to obey the Bible, the world would still be a better place, right? But none of us would have life in that case. And so the Bible can't be for us simply something that we add to the mix to help shape us in addition to culture and family and entertainment and everything else. The Bible says, no, because of Jesus Christ, you have a new heart, a new life, a new desire, and a new shape. Something new, not something more something new, something else that only God could give us. That's why Peter calls it the living word of God. It's alive. It speaks. It moves. It changes us. And that's why we're called to crave it as if our lives depend on it. Because according to Peter, they really do. We will shrivel up and die apart from the desire we have for God's word. So I, I, here in a moment, we're going to pray. And we need to, I need to pray about this for myself. But I just want to encourage you in this. If you, are, if you are not spending time in the Bible like you know you should, stop for just a moment and, and let's, let's question our motivations here. Is it just something I ought to do? Is it just something that I know I should be doing and God's mad at me because I haven't been? Or is it something that by God's grace my heart would crave so much so that I can't live without it? Because it's that attitude of 1 Peter 2 that actually changes us and changes how we approach the book. Let's pray. 
Father, I, I'm, I'm asking for myself in this moment for a change of heart. And I suspect that all of us are in need of this, a change of heart, Lord, that, that maybe for us we have come to the Bible with great intentions. We have intended to read more, to study more. Maybe we started off the year strong in January and, and we've, we've kind of fizzled out. And, and Lord, I know at least for me, there's a lot of guilt that comes with that. There's a lot of shame. I'm not doing enough. Um, maybe, maybe sin has creeped back into our lives because our, 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 we've, we've dried up in, in our pursuit of the Bible. Um, but Lord, where, wherever we find ourselves this morning, I pray for, for true encouragement. That, Father, you have not given us a book to crush us with. You have not called us to identify all the, all the nasty things in our hearts that the Bible tells us about and then try really hard to overcome them. We can't. But, Lord, you don't call us to that. You call us, Lord, to, to, to seek and pursue and love and trust and enjoy Jesus Christ. And your word is, is the way that we see him full face. Your word is the way that we recognize our need for him and our sin and that we recognize, Lord, the great and, and, and wonderful grace that he's given us. Um, and so, Father, I pray that, that this morning, for us, I, I suspect that we all could use more discipline in this area of our lives, but Lord, show us that discipline is not where it starts for us, but that you want to give us a heart that just that delights, that desires, that craves for your life-giving word. And God, I pray that you would turn our hearts in that direction to see Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. And Lord, let that be the, the flame that you light in us today that becomes, I pray, a bonfire, a, a, a desire. I can't go through my day without the life-giving word of God. Lord, that's a heart issue for me. And I pray, Lord, that you would do your great work to change my heart. And I ask that for all of us today in Jesus' name.